extraordinary, adjective, very unusual or remarkable. But what does that really mean? And how does it apply to FINRA members, both firms and individuals alike, looking to receive credit for cooperation in FINRA enforcement matters? On this episode, we sit down with Susan Schroeder to dig into just what extraordinary means to FINRA enforcement and to learn more about recent updated guidance on credit for extraordinary cooperation. Welcome to FINRA Unscripted from New York. I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. I'm pleased to welcome back to the show today, FINRA's head of enforcement, Susan Schroeder. Susan, welcome back. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks for having me. So the last time you were here on FINRA Unscripted, we talked about the enforcement guiding principles and how you wanted any compliance professional to be able to look at any FINRA enforcement action and say, yes, this case makes sense. So it seems that the theme of the past couple of years for you has been transparency. In July, you released new guidance on credit for extraordinary cooperation, and this seems kind of like an extension of that overall effort to increase transparency. Is that a fair assessment? It is, yeah. I think the guidance we've recently put out on credit for extraordinary cooperation is exactly that, an attempt to provide a little bit more of a roadmap to firms and to individual respondents to help them understand what steps they can take to help themselves, what they can do that is really above and beyond the level that we expect of every respondent in every investigation to help us achieve our ends within enforcement, help us get restitution to harmed customers as quickly as possible, help us make sure that things are remediated as quickly as possible. Steps that respondents can take to gain that credit from us that can really materially impact the outcome of an investigation. So before we dig into the updates in this guidance, I wanted to take a step back and ask, what is credit for cooperation? What's being credited? What's cooperation? What are you looking for? Great questions. So technically, the guidance is about credit for extraordinary cooperation. And that's important because, of course, every respondent in an investigation, every participant in the industry is expected to cooperate with FINRA's requests. So, for example, if you receive an 8210 request from enforcement as part of an investigation, or if you receive a request for information as part of your exam, you are expected to cooperate, and you don't get extra points for doing just what you're required to do. What this notice is about is extraordinary cooperation, ways in which we've seen respondents really go above and beyond, take extraordinary steps, and and really demonstrate significant effort beyond that which is required of them on a regulatory basis to fix a problem or to help us get to an end result quickly. And so what kind of credit can a firm or individual expect if they have extraordinary cooperation? The most visible forms of credit that people have seen over the years are reductions to sanction or even the decision not to impose a sanction. You've seen that in a number of enforcement matters in the past few years where the misconduct is significant. We feel we need to censure the firm in order to have a sufficient regulatory response. But we still believe that the extraordinary cooperation that the firm has demonstrated merits acknowledgement through something like a $0 fine, or maybe it's a fine of $1 or $3 million when it would have been multiples of that number. 
There are other forms of credit, though. You don't get to see, typically, all of the cases in which we don't bring a case at all, which is another form, at times, of credit for extraordinary cooperation. So we may determine that a member firm or an individual respondent did indeed violate the rules, but because of the steps they took afterwards that went so far above and beyond what they were required to do... We close the case without further action. Now, that's something that hasn't typically been visible to people in the public because there's no case, and so we don't talk about it. One of the things we talk about in our notice is our decision to look for opportunities that will allow us to talk about those decisions, never betraying the anonymity of a respondent who was under a confidential investigation and didn't end up having a public action. We wouldn't want to identify them, but we would talk about at a high level the steps they took that led us to bring no case. What's the goal in offering credit for extraordinary cooperation? The goal is to achieve FINRA's regulatory objectives more quickly and efficiently. For example, if we have an incident where the violation has led to widespread customer harm, figuring out what restitution should be calculated, which customers should receive calculation, that can actually be a very time-consuming and resource-intensive process. And if we can work together with a member firm that is willing to demonstrate extraordinary cooperation and really take some steps that are beyond that which they're required to take, maybe we can get restitution back to customers in six months instead of two years from now. Being able to get to that kind of result in an efficient and quick manner is the goal here. So this updated guidance regarding credit for extraordinary cooperation updated something that was initially issued back in 2008. That was Reg Notice 0870. We'll link to that in the show notes. But what has changed from 2008? A few things, I think, have changed since 2008. First, we've gotten a lot of questions over time from industry participants about what the guidance in 0870 meant. And specifically, people really wanted more concrete examples of what are some steps I can take. The guidance in 0870 is really pretty high level. And we thought it would be valuable for people to see all in one place the kinds of steps we've tried to acknowledge publicly over the years. Another important event that intervened between 2008 and now was Rule 4530. FINRA Rule 4530 went into effect in 2011 and required member firms to self-report certain kinds of violative activity. And one of the kind of the four prongs of credit for extraordinary cooperation has always been self-reporting. So after Rule 4530 went into effect, we would get the question on a pretty regular basis, can I still get credit for self-reporting if there's a rule that requires self-reporting? It's a good question. So we wanted to be able to provide the way we were thinking about self-reporting and the other prongs of credit for cooperation and how they all interact. So beyond self-reporting, before you mentioned expecting firms to respond to requests from FINRA enforcement, but what else is expected as a base level of cooperation from members versus what would be considered extraordinary. Sure. So you're right. Responding to our request for information is required. Fixing a problem is required. If a member firm identifies, for example, that a supervisory system is not reasonably designed, they need to fix it. And if they identify that customers have been harmed as a result of violative activity, we would expect the customers to be made whole. Extraordinary cooperation, the steps beyond that are typically steps that help us get to those results in a way that saves FINRA time and resources and really gets the problem fixed and the customers made whole as promptly as possible. 
And so is determining whether cooperation extraordinary, is that a black and white matter or is it kind of on a continuum? I wish I could say it was a black or white matter because everybody would really like a fine line that I could draw. No, it really is. I'll pull the old lawyer trick. It's very facts and circumstances dependent. There's not a science to this. It really is our judgment at the end of the day about the value that a respondent's cooperation brought to our process. And so when it comes to FINRA Rule 4530, which was the one that requires self-reporting, how can a firm go beyond what is expected when it comes to self-reporting? When it comes to self-reporting, I would say not all self-reports are created equal. So a typical 4530 self-report really just lays out the bare facts of, for example, the findings that the firm made that led the firm to determine that it violated a rule. A much more robust self-report might involve, for example, the firm coming into FINRA and saying, we had to self-report this to you, but here's what else we've done. We've already created a chronology of all the events that we know of that led to the problem. And we've collected a series of emails that we think will really help you understand what happened right away. Give us some insight right away into what the firm knows, and then keep us in the loop as the firm continues to investigate and remediate. What I'm also hearing throughout this is a focus on restitution. Why is that? Restitution is always one of our primary regulatory priorities. Investor protection is what we're here for. And so if an investor has been harmed and suffered a quantifiable loss, making sure that they're made whole really is our number one priority in that kind of case. So what determines if a firm has exceeded expectations when it comes to restitution? If it's expected when there is harm, how do they exceed those expectations? So ways to exceed the expectations that we've seen in the past, they could range from hiring perhaps a consultant or extra temporary help to gather the data that you will need to make the restitution calculations, or identifying kind of a rules-based or a principles-based way to calculate restitution as opposed to going through the calculation customer by customer, which can be very time-consuming. So really finding ways to expedite the process. And... When it comes to assisting FINRA during investigations, what makes the assistance substantial? Again, it's something beyond just answering the question asked. You know, as a lawyer who used to represent people in testimony, I would tell them, only answer the question asked. In this context, that would be bad advice. Offering what you know, being proactive, being able to say, hey, FINRA, let us explain to you a little bit more about why this is a widespread issue in the industry. Or let us tell you everything we've learned so far as part of our investigation. Of course, we're not asking people to waive privilege. We wouldn't expect that. But things like I described before, a a chronology, or hey, we've identified some key documents, or even... There's some information that you haven't asked for, FINRA, but we think it's relevant and we want to give it to you. Can we provide that to you? Those are the kinds of above and beyond steps that we'd be looking for. And what role does timing play in all this? It's an interesting question, especially because the FINRA sanctions guidelines talk about getting credit for a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today. And when it comes to remediation and restitution, the sanctions guidelines say that FINRA will give more credit for restitution and remediation that takes place before a regulator becomes involved in a matter. But that sort of bumps right up against Rule 4530, because if a respondent firm is required to self-report 
activity within 30 days, they're really not going to have the time to remediate a widespread supervisory problem or to pay restitution to a large number of customers. And so what we've talked about in the most recent guidance is under the right circumstances, we would also consider remediation or restitution that's made after FINRA has gotten involved, perhaps as a result of a 4530 self-report. So beyond the credit that a firm might get or an individual might get for cooperation, what are some of the benefits of cooperation for a firm or individual? Why is it important to encourage it? I think firms and industry participants and FINRA, actually our interests are aligned in this endeavor. Firms want to fix problems. They want to make sure their customers are being treated fairly. They want to have a good relationship with their regulator. And FINRA has all those same goals. We want to be able to learn from the industry about problems that might be happening in a widespread way. We want to be making sure that customers are protected. And of course, we want to make sure that the industry is addressing any issues that it may have identified. So this is a way in which we partner together to meet those shared goals. So who can benefit from this new guidance? Is it firms, individuals? Who should be looking at this? I think any FINRA member or associated person should be looking at this. Certainly, we've brought cases against large firms where we've announced credit for cooperation, but this policy is not limited to firms of a specific size or even just to firms. There are certainly ways in which individuals may get forms of credit for cooperation, and we talk a little bit about that in the notice. And we don't have an expectation that small firms would necessarily be able to take the same steps that a large firm could, right? A large firm with more resources might be able to hire an outside consultant that might be beyond the reach of a small firm. We're realistic about that, but I still think that small firms can take specific steps such as being really open with FINRA, providing us with information that we haven't otherwise asked for, even just hiring people to work overtime are ways in which a small firm might demonstrate extraordinary cooperation. So... What prompted this updated guidance? Why now? We felt it was important to update the guidance for a few reasons. One, we have been getting questions over the years, ever since Rule 4530 went into effect, and frankly, even before, about what 0870 meant. Can you provide us with more detail? Can you provide us with a little bit more of a roadmap? And within the past two years, as we've worked on the enforcement integration and really took a step back to think about how can we be the best enforcement program we can be, we did very much focus on transparency. What we heard from the industry and what I firmly believe is that an enforcement action has to be extremely predictable and transparent in order for it to be effective. People need to understand what the consequences of their actions will be if we're going to have any impact on their actions. And so putting out this guidance was an attempt to provide that kind of transparency. And one of the elements in the guidance that provides detail in the roadmap includes some actual examples in there. What are some of the recent cases that you included in there that showed extraordinary cooperation and how that applied to the case? So a number of cases that we talked about in the reg notice involved firms that really responded to a formal action that we brought several years ago against a firm that had failed to waive mutual fund fees for certain kinds of accounts, charitable accounts, certain kinds of retirement accounts. And some firms responded to that formal action by taking a step back and looking at their own program, saying, do we have this problem? Finding that they did, and then being very proactive, coming to FINRA to say, 
We saw your action. We looked. We have the same problem. Here's our plan. Here's how we're going to fix it right away. Here's how we're already calculating the restitution we're going to pay to customers. Here are all the steps we're taking. And the result of that kind of extraordinary cooperation was FINRA could take its resources and use them somewhere else. We were able to take the enforcement investigators and attorneys who would have worked on that investigation for a year and instead have them work on an investigation of perhaps a firm that posed a lot of risk. And so that's a great example, that series of cases involving mutual fund fee waivers of the ways in which our interests are aligned with the industry in this kind of endeavor. And so what would you say are some of the key takeaways for compliance professionals looking at these examples and the guidance overall? I'd say one key takeaway is think proactively about how you can help yourself during an investigation. What steps can we take that would make the FINRA team understand better what's going on, be up to speed more quickly? How can we speed along our remediation? Do we need to shuffle the order of an IT fix to make sure this coding error gets addressed very quickly? Or do we need to hire some people that can help us for the next month, collect the data that we need to understand the problem? I think compliance professionals should be thinking about what can I do to help my firm really partner with its regulator? So just to wrap things up a bit, beyond this guidance, how does enforcement plan to be more transparent when it comes to credit for extraordinary cooperation going forward? Well, one thing we're going to do is insert into our settlement documents a section entitled Credit for Extraordinary Cooperation, where it's appropriate, where we want to really lay out with some specificity the steps that the respondent took to earn credit. Another thing we'll do is look for opportunities to talk about the non-public kinds of credit that respondents may receive. So, for example, all the times that we issue informal cautionary actions rather than bringing a formal action, those are not things we've talked about. But now, if that decision is driven by the extraordinary steps that the respondent took in the course of the investigation, we'll look for opportunities to really describe the steps they took. Well, Susan, that's all the questions I had on this, but it's definitely an interesting new guidance and encourage listeners to take a look. So thanks for joining us once again on FINRA Unscripted. Thanks for having me. From New York, I'm your host, Caitlin Kiernan. If you have any ideas for future episodes, you can let us know. You can email us at finraunscripted at finra.org. Till next time. Please note, FINRA podcasts are the sole property of FINRA, and the information provided is for informational and educational purposes only. The content of the podcast does not constitute any FINRA rule or amendment or interpretation to such rules. Compliance with any recommended conduct presented does not mean that a firm or person has complied with the full extent of their obligations under FINRA rules, the rules of any other SRO, or securities laws. This podcast is provided as is. FINRA and its affiliates are not responsible for any human or mechanical errors or omissions. Parties may not reproduce these podcasts in any form without the express written consent of FINRA. FINRA.